Welcome to Episode 3 of Impact Medicom's podcast series on precision medicine and oncology. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom's Sarah Doucette, we welcome guest Dr. Brandon Sheffield, pathologist at William Osler Health System in Brampton, Ontario, who discusses how genomic testing has evolved into an important tool for pathologists to help inform optimal cancer treatments. Dr. Sheffield also offers insights from a laboratory perspective on the barriers that exist in Ontario to access comprehensive genomic profiling and what factors institutions need to consider when deciding how to implement this type of genomic testing. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. Uh, while the last episode in this series discussed access to genomic profiling BC with Dr. Howie Lim and Jim Slater, this episode focuses on access to genomic testing in Ontario. So I'm happy to introduce Dr. Brandon Sheffield, who will be sharing his insights and expertise on the topic. So like Howie and Jim, I have had the pleasure to work with Brandon on a recently published report by Impact Medicom that outlines recommendations for how funding of comprehensive genomic profiling can be prioritized for patients with solid tumors. So we'll touch on this report a bit in our discussion and also talk about the unique obstacles in Ontario that impair access to genomic profiling and the information it provides. So to start us off, Brandon, could you tell us a bit about your work as a pathologist and how genomic testing has become an important part of this field? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me on uh, the podcast today. Uh, so I'm an anatomic pathologist, and what that means is that I uh, diagnose uh, biopsies under the microscope, and that's what we do all the time. We're a general anatomic pathologist, so, so we diagnose tissue biopsies if they come from a colonoscopy, if they come from a radiology procedure, and the other thing we look at under the microscope routinely are, are surgical resection specimens uh, that are generated uh, from our operating room and our surgeons. And we look at those and, and we grade them, we, we come up with diagnoses, and uh, we, we provide reports that help guide clinical management, of both in an oncology uh, space as well as in a, a surgical space. The other thing that we do, and this is a, a more recent uh, addition to the job, is we provide biomarker testing. And that's where we'll do additional tests on these tissue samples or sometimes blood samples. And the results of these tests help predict whether or not a patient will respond to certain drugs or therapies. And we report those to our colleagues in oncology uh, to help them decide what the best possible treatment would be for a given patient. You asked about uh, gene sequencing. And a lot of the biomarkers today are genetic in nature. So we look for specific mutations and those mutations are present in a patient's uh, cancer. Not, so not in every cell in their body, just in the tumor cells. And so we, we take a biopsy that was derived by a radiologist or a surgeon or an endoscopist, and that contains a DNA or RNA from a patient's tumor and we'll sequence those nucleic acids and look for alterations that can be used as biomarkers and deliver that information to the oncologists so that they can translate it into uh, what we call personalized treatments. So in our report, we talk about the fact that the number of biomarkers, genetic biomarkers that are now required 
um, to really be able to make the best treatment decisions for a patient is increasing. And this calls for a need to have comprehensive genomic profiling available. Can you explain the value of this type of testing for cancer patients? It's a, it's a bit of a mouthful, the comprehensive genomic profiling. Uh, just for, for those who, who are new to the lingo, a gene is uh, an individual unit or, or piece of DNA that encodes a protein. When we talk about the genome, that's actually the sum total of all the genes in the human body. Uh, so there's, there's many uh, tens of thousands uh, of genes inside of a genome. So whenever we talk about genomics, we're talking about more than one gene at a time. Classically, uh, these te- biomarker tests go one at a time. And, and the word we, we ascribe to that is single gene testing. And uh, so in lung cancer, for instance, uh, in the early 2000s, we discovered uh, that gene mutations in EGFR would be amenable uh, to EGFR inhibitors. So if we test for EGFR, our oncologist can prescribe an EGFR inhibitor, and that's an example of a single gene test. Uh, another good example would be in breast cancer, where it, if we test for a HER2 amplification, our oncologist will be able to, scri- to uh, prescribe a HER2 inhibitor. Those are are two really good examples of single gene tests. But as time uh, moves forward, we've discovered a lot of additional genes that can be targeted that are amenable uh, to oncologists prescribing a targeted therapy. So after EGFR was discovered in lung cancer, we discovered ALK, uh, an additional marker called ROS, and then BRAF and MET, and the list goes on and on. So, you know, it, it may be easy to provide a testing for one gene, and it may be doable to provide a test for two genes or even three. But each time we provide a successive biomarker result, it costs additional money. And more importantly, it actually consumes a little bit of that biopsy. So it's very possible that we would run out of tissue and not be able to test for the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth biomarker. And we don't know what which one is going to be positive. Uh, so we have to actually guess which one gets prioritized uh, ahead of the others. And that can be problematic. So instead of single gene testing, which was popular in the early 2000s when personalized medicine was first being developed, we now want to do a multiplex testing where we'll simultaneously interrogate uh, upwards of 50 different genes all at once. And then and in, instead of reporting back uh, individual results for each gene, we'll tell our oncologist simply which one is positive and which treatment uh, would be best suited for that patient. And when we provide all of those results in one single shot, the word we uh we we use to describe that is comprehensive genomic profiling. Thank you. That was that was a great explanation of that. Uh, it is definitely a mouthful to say. Um, I I will probably shorten it to CGP uh, to make it easier. Um, but you, so you've ex- explained the value of having CGP versus uh, single gene or single gene tests. But is this a value for all patients with cancer who should really have access to CGP? Yeah, certainly. So. CGP can definitely has the potential 
to benefit anybody with cancer. And it, it, it really doesn't matter what tumor type you have. There's potentially you, you could derive a benefit. The, the issue that we run into is that CGP is a scarce resource. It costs money. It costs time. And unfortunately, in Canada, in our public health care system, we don't have the resource to provide this for everybody. Uh, so one of the exercises that we're forced to go through is to try and identify who will actually benefit the most. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things that we'd consider there. One is uh, the severity of the cancer, uh, but also which targeted therapies are available for that particular cancer. So uh, in a, a lot of times we're able to find a genetic alteration, uh, but there may not actually be a drug to match that, uh, that alteration. So usually it's, uh, that is the driving factor, is the availability of targeted therapies and uh, compounds that can actually be prescribed and are accessible uh, to our patients. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's a bit of what we, we uh, looked at uh, making recommendations for in the CGP report that we did together. Um, so can you explain some of some of the tumor types that are kind of considered high priority right now, uh, keeping in mind that, as you said, all patients could potentially benefit? Yeah, definitely. And when we go through the exercises like this, it's important to consider the scope. So uh, when we did this priority report, this was for all of Canada. And certainly within different regions and different practices, this may alter uh, a little bit. And I know that we're going uh, coast to coast. But, and in general, in, in Canada, uh, the proportion of different cancers and the availability of drugs is the same from province to province. But you would want to consider that um, especially based on on what type of patient population you're seeing in your practice. So for instance, in a pediatric practice, this could look very different. Um, In in our practice, and and this is in line with uh, the priority report, one of the highest yield groups is carcinoma of unknown primary. Uh, That is a particularly uh, aggressive diagnosis. And that's when a patient has metastatic disease But despite all available testing and imaging, we're unable to say where the cancer is coming from or where where it originated. And in that instance, the value of CGP is twofold. Uh, One, it may actually give us a clue as to where the cancer came from. So it may enable not just a targeted therapy, but it it may allow the oncologist to provide a more rationalized non-targeted therapy as well. Uh, if we're able to pin uh, down the origin of a cancer. The other thing is, and more importantly, uh, these are very difficult cancers to treat. And if we have any clue that comes up on our CGP, that'll be extremely valuable to the patient and to their oncologist. It's also a very rare cancer type. So it's, uh, you know, when we're considering this from an economic point of view, it's certainly one that, that we'd want to include uh, as having access to CGP. Uh, the other uh, cancer type that, that we uh, really advocate for testing for is lung cancer. Uh, lung cancer is the biggest cause of cancer-related death in Canada. It accounts for more deaths than breast, colon, and pancreas combined. And the we know a lot more about lung cancer uh, 
uh, right now than we did uh, 20 years ago. And we know that this disease is actually uh, very heterogeneous at a molecular level. And a lot of lung cancers contain actionable driver events. So uh, about 20% of our lung cancer patients will have EGFR mutations amenable to targeted therapy. A smaller percentage uh, will have alterations in ALK, also ROS, BRAF, and then an, uh, a large number of emerging targets such as MET, exons uh, 14 skipping, uh, RET rearrangements, rearrangements in NTRAC, and activations of genes like HER2. So the, the number of actionable targets in, in lung cancer is uh, easily more than six. And, and last I checked, I had a, a 11 actionable targets uh, for lung cancer. Uh, and that's really not possible to capture that by single gene testing. Uh, the, the other issue with lung cancer is that the tissue is very difficult to access. Uh, and that's just due to the anatomic location of the lungs. They're, um, they've got the heart right between them, and it's difficult to, to obtain tissue there. So we really need to um, maximize the utility that we're getting off of these small biopsies. And if, if I could try and quantify it, a, a typical lung cancer biopsy is about one-tenth the size of a grain of rice. And by the time it comes to a molecular lab after the diagnostic uh, workup is complete, about 75% of the sample is already consumed. So what we have left to work with is, is very minimal. And we need to make sure that right up front, right away, that we're doing the best possible test uh, to make sure that patient gets on uh, the best possible treatment. If we miss that opportunity, there's a very good chance that we won't get another one. So we really want to apply uh, the, the most useful test right away at the beginning of that patient's course of their disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lung cancer is, is a very good example of where CGP would be extremely valuable. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, what is access to um, comprehensive genomic testing like across Ontario right now? I would, I would say it's quite poor. And uh, what we'd like to see and in an ideal world is that uh, any cancer patient uh, with uh, particularly those with, with uh, certain diagnoses like carcinoma of unknown primary or, or non-small cell lung carcinoma uh, would have access at the time of diagnosis to both uh, comprehensive and timely next generation sequencing. That unfortunately is not the case. Comprehensive genomic profiling is only available at certain institutions, typically academic centers. And a lot of times the comprehensive profiling itself will be linked to a research study. So there will be certain barriers, uh, consents and signatures and, and, uh, that are preventing uh, direct access to, to that form of testing. About 90% of cancer patients in Ontario are treated in a community setting. And the access to NGS in a community setting is, is very poor. It's essentially nil. Uh, so, so in order to get uh, uh, access to the, to the best level of testing, patients will require a lot of advocacy on their own part, advocacy from their oncologist. And many patients will elect to pay uh, to have their samples sent out of country uh, because the access just isn't there uh, through the public system. Mm -hmm. So can you describe um, 
what kind of testing is available uh, at your center? Because I know it's, it's a bit of a unique case there in a community uh, hospital setting. Uh, for sure. So in, in most centers, uh, the funding is based on a single gene test model. Uh, so for a disease like lung cancer, there's uh, uh, stipends associated uh, with biomarkers like EGFR, uh, ELK, ROS, and PDL1. PDL1 is a bit of a strange biomarker. It's one that's not really included on CGP because it's not genetic in nature. It's a protein biomarker. What some centers are able to do is uh, use that funding to deliver a comprehensive genomic profiling. So what, what we've done in our center is we focus very much on the speed. It, it can take in, in the public system when, when a patient's diagnosed in a community setting and their uh, material is transferred to a different hospital, it can take well over six weeks to get the results returned uh, to a treating oncologist. And that was our experience uh, in a community practice that was sending uh, our tissue out to a reference center. And so what we did first was we brought in uh, single gene testing and we brought in a specific type of single gene testing that was ultra fast. And so we were able to deliver our uh, lung cancer biomarkers with an average turnaround time of about four days. And prior to that, it took a, the average turnaround time was about 64 days uh, to get the results back. And uh, that was, it was very, very exciting for us. And it, it, uh, it meant really a quantum leap forward in the way we'd be able to treat our cancer patients. But it, the problem was that that system was based in, in single gene tests. And as the number of biomarkers grew, it was not possible to keep that up uh, for the reasons that we talked about er earlier in the show. Uh, so we looked for a type of next-gen sequencing or comprehensive genomic profiling that would be able to match that speed. And uh, so we used a system uh, that was newly developed. It's, it's fully automated. It's called a, a Genexus integrated sequencer. And so we run uh, next-generation sequencing right inside of our anatomic pathology lab, hand in hand with our immunohistochemistry, so protein biomarkers like PDL1, so that we can get the results out uh, in a similar time frame. And our goal was to switch over to CGP without increasing the turnaround time from four days. And we actually just looked at our, our first 250 cases, and I'm very happy to announce that the median turnaround time remained at four days. Uh, so, so we did move from a, a model where we were providing uh, six or seven biomarkers to doing comprehensive genomic profiling with over 50 biomarkers without increasing turnaround time by a single day. Yeah, that's great. That's very exciting for you and for your patients. We were, we were super excited about it. And uh, the one thing I'll add to you is that comprehensive genomic profiling, we should really, we can add on that definition, is it's not just about the number of genes or the number of targets. We use a 50 gene panel. Some labs use a 500 gene panel. Some, some labs will, will use even a thousand genes or more. Uh, but I, what I think is really key is the major classes of mutation. So we, we often talk about hotspot panel. Uh, and, and that is really good at identifying single nucleotide variants where, where one letter of the DNA changes to a new letter. 
or small insertions or deletions where, um, you know, a, a string of three or six or nine base pairs is deleted out of a gene and that changes the function. Uh, but what we really need to move towards uh, to consider an assay comprehensive is that it captures two additional classes of mutation. One is the copy number alterations. Those are amplification or deletion events. And the other one is fusion oncogenes. And, to, and that is really the key to, to calling an assay comprehensive rather than just the, the total number of, of genes in, inside of the panel. And so I, th I think that's key for anybody who's out there looking to insource a next-gen sequencing assay or, or who's looking to, to send out their tissue uh, to an outside lab to get that comprehensive genomic profiling. I think that's really what they need to be looking for uh, rather than just the total number of genes. Because after, after we get out of 50 or 100, uh, the utility of those, given the current landscape of drugs that are available, can really diminish. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to ask, what, what do you think are the barriers right now uh, that exist in Ontario that prevent patients from accessing CGP and precision medicine treatments? So, so there's a couple of easy ones like the low-lying fruit and, and things like the cost. These cost uh, of the technology is falling very rapidly, but for a lot of uh, hospitals and a lot of health systems, it's still out of reach. Uh, in, in addition to the actual cost per test, uh, there's, there's issues re uh, relating to professional time, to, to reimbursement of our technologists who actually perform these tests. And then the actual capital expenditures of next generation sequencers can be high. Uh, the other issue might, uh, another low lying fruit might be the education around it, that a lot of uh, labs don't necessarily have the skill set to provide these tests. And it's not something that's widely taught in uh, to laboratory physicians and lab technologists when they're training. Uh, you know, one, one other thing that we, you might consider is, is the, the attitude. Uh, around around these tests and and the way they're viewed, and that is that they're um, thought to be uh, somewhat uh, more closer to research than medicine, and that's why they're often found in in academic research centers rather than than uh, community care uh, centers, and I think that. It's largely historical in nature and that when gene sequencing uh, first came out and, and when a lot of the utility was, was in the research space and a lot of the labs uh, utilizing this for clinical care would, would be uh, borrowing and learning from the adjacent research uh, facilities at their institutions. But, but the truth is in, in today, in, in 2021, this type of technology is not research. It, it, it's a clinical tool and it's used for clinical care of these patients. And uh, it, it needs to be distributed to the masses, uh, to everyone who has cancer, regardless if they're, if they're treated at a university hospital uh, or at their local community center. Mm -hmm. And so I, I need to ask you this because um, when I talk to uh, Ontario oncologists, this always comes up that they complain about the lab licensing processes and issues there. Um, can you describe some of the, the issues with lab licensing in Ontario and how that can impact what kind of information you could get from CGP? Uh, definitely. Uh, so on, Ontario has a, a different infrastructure uh, for licensing of uh, laboratory tests. And it is a little bit uh, strange and odd. It, 
and it's it's not something that's really present in other jurisdictions uh, in the world. Uh, and and certainly it can be a barrier to offering these tests. The way uh, lab licensing works is we we get uh, one overall license for the branch uh, of testing that we're performing. So a, a license for molecular pathology or a license for immunohistochemistry. Uh, but within immunohistochemistry, there are no licenses issued for the individual tests uh, that we provide. So if we had a license for immunohistochemistry, we could do pdl one We could add in a test for ALK. We could add in a test for ROS. We could add in a test uh, for something called BRAF V600E. That's an IHC test for a specific mutation in the BRAF gene. It's a very useful uh, clinical tool. It's really the responsibility of the laboratory to validate those and ensure that the results they're providing are are high quality and accurate, Uh, but no additional lab licensing would be required. On the flip side, if we were to do a more molecular test, like a PCR uh, that's done in a test tube rather than on a glass slide, we would need a license for the molecular lab, but then also an individual license for each uh, gene to which we're providing results. So we would need a a license to provide EGFR uh, by PCR. We need a separate license to provide KRAS and a separate license to provide BRAF. So if you take a a gene mutation like BRAF V600E, we could uh, derive those results by IHC and uh, no, no additional license would be required. But if we wanted to do the exact same test by PCR, we would in theory need to apply for an additional license. That can be very challenging. Uh, it, it, takes, uh, it takes some time. Uh, the, the license application would need to be filled out by a pathologist or, or a senior technologist. Uh, and the turnaround time uh, to get the license results uh, back is, uh, can be slow. You can imagine how that might be difficult if we were trying to license, say, a 500 gene panel, uh, where we might in theory, you need to apply for 500 different licenses, which is is certainly a fear. The uh, Ministry of Health will allow panel licenses. uh, So it is possible to apply for the 500 genes in a single application. There there is a bit of a misconception that we might need to actually apply 500 different times in order to uh, be able to report on a full 500 gene panel. That's not the case. Uh, It is still, you will still need a license for the particular panel that you're running. And it is still a very onerous and lengthy process. Many labs, uh, what they'll do is if they have, say, three licenses for genes like EGFR, KRAS and BRAF, and they're running a 50-gene panel, they may just report those three genes for which they have licenses and then discard the other 47 results. And I, I would have to say on a, on a personal note, like that's, that's really a shame that some, that some labs would do that. And uh, that's information that could be very useful and helpful and could uh, really improve the life and extend the length of life for a cancer patient. Yet the information is not being provided and it's really due to bureaucratic red tape uh, and nothing more. So so that is something that uh, we'd hope to uh, streamline and hope to improve uh, in Ontario. That being said, it it is a barrier but it's not insurmountable. 
And it certainly is possible to get to get past this. And I know a lot of labs are, are starting uh, to provide CGP results to their patients in Ontario. So I know a lot of labs are starting to provide CGP. Um, I know others still need to get this going and get it implemented. So and you touched on it a bit. What kind of uh, considerations do, do these centers or labs need to make? Um, when deciding how to provide CGP, I know you mentioned to look at the type of um, the, the type of alterations that it can detect, such as fusions. But are there any other considerations, like looking at in-house versus outsourcing, um, that type of thing? Oh yeah, certainly. And it's it, this is a, a hospital-wide or a region-wide decision. It's not something that can be done by a laboratory uh, physician or a laboratorian on their own. Particularly as this relates to cancer care, it, it needs to be done in um, uh, working together with your oncology group, uh, working together even with the surgery group uh, and the hospital leadership to figure out what's going to be right for your particular center. And you know, as much as we're making personalized and custom treatments for our patients. The genetics program has to be uh, personalized and customized to the particular health region that it's serving. And uh, no, no two hospitals in Ontario or in Canada are alike. And uh, the needs of all of them are quite different. You know, so in our center, uh, a lot of the molecular genetics is done by, by anatomic pathologists. And our responsibility is, is mainly towards the cancer patients. A lot of other programs will, will build a, a genetics uh, service. Uh, that also serves the needs of the hereditary uh, program. And so there will be different considerations there as well. And then uh, what one would need to consider too is, is uh, what type of cancer patients you're treating and, and what the patient population is like in a particular center. Uh, and, and again, no, no two uh, setups are, are identical. Can you go into more detail about like some of the benefits or disadvantages of say doing something in-house versus outsourcing. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I I think that uh, in-house can offer some considerable advantages. You build expertise within your own institution. If there's any questions or issues about the reports, it means that you'll have a molecular pathologist uh, be able to attend uh, multidisciplinary tumor boards, be able to comment on those reports, be able to put uh, the molecular studies in context with other findings, such as uh, imaging, other pathology, uh, and, and really be able to take an active role in patient care as part of the multidisciplinary cancer team. Uh, when you're getting results from the outside, a lot of that is lost. And, and instead of the molecular pathologist being uh, a cancer expert uh, for that patient, really they turn into a, a name on a report and uh, they're not as accessible for any issues or questions. Uh, it's still possible, but it's, it's a lot um, more difficult. The other benefit of having uh, of having the stuff in house is that uh, your institution will own the data. So uh, you can collect that and use it to study your own patient population. It may uh, serve a research need or, or academic interests of the group, uh, but it may also be valuable uh, quality tools uh, to ensure that you're providing uh, adequate care. In terms of the cost, uh, there, there's a considerably high uh, startup cost uh, to in-house testing. So that would involve purchasing a uh, gene sequencer if, if you're using comprehensive genomic profiling, uh, and also the cost of validation, which is never going to be covered by any uh, stipends uh, from the Ministry of Health. I think though long-term, there's probably a cost to savings uh, because uh, nothing is free. Even send-out testing, that somebody will have to pick up the tab. 
But there's some additional costs with send out testing, which can be avoided with in-house testing. And those are namely the shipping, the tracking, accessioning, and reporting of uh, referred out cases. And, and uh, those costs can actually become uh, considerable when they add up over time. At the end of the day, I, I think that each institution needs to decide what works best for them. And, and it could be a situation like cookies, where homemade always tastes better than the ones you buy from the store. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, it, it could also work out to be more like cars, where you don't want a car that you built yourself. You'd rather just buy one that was professionally made. So, so you really have to decide which, which situation you're in as a hospital and a health system. So before we close the discussion today, I wanted to ask one last question that was more of a forward-looking question. So in the near future, how do you hope to see genomic information being used in oncology practice? The, the way I see it is that we currently base most of our treatments still off of what we see under the microscope. And that's been the case for nearly 100 years. Before that time, we actually base our treatments based on what we see without a microscope. We would, we would look at a patient, we would touch them, we would smell them, we would uh, make, make these sorts of assessments and, and do our best to offer the most appropriate treatment that we could. When the microscope got invented, it changed all of that. For the first time ever, we could see cells, we could tell what was benign, what was malignant, and we could really inform uh, medical practice, in particular, surgical practice. We could, we could tell our colleagues in surgery what when to operate, when not to operate, and, wh and whether or not a, a particular procedure was successful. You know, when that happened, there was a really an explosion in, in medicine. There, we, we really expanded our abilities greatly. And, and right now, we're able to see for the first time in 100 years past what we could with the light microscope. And now we can see right inside of a cell to tell what alterations are happening at a molecular level. And it's hard to appreciate that on a day-to-day, -day, but right now we're in another explosion where we're truly uh, opening up our understanding of disease, cancer in particular. And I, I think that in the future, we'll really be basing all of our cancer treatments off of uh, genetic information and using the light microscope and our visual assessments as a way really to guide uh, the genetic assessments of our tumors. So thank you, Brandon, uh, for joining me today uh, to provide your perspective on the access to CGP in Ontario. I hope we can continue to see progress across Canada in getting CGP available for patients with cancer. So right on. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it was awesome to be on. Okay. Thanks again. Take care.